Hi, I'm Robson Morgan from Minnesota, and I'm currently binge-watching Simpsons episodes from the 90s. That's Professor Morgan, an economics professor at Minerva. This week, we're diving deep into his story on Humans of Minerva. Welcome to Humans of Minerva, a podcast that captures the interesting stories of humans at Minerva. I'm your host, Julia Ip, and today we have a very special guest. I'll be sitting down with Professor Morgan. Hey, Prof. Morgan. Hello, I'm very honored to be here. Thanks so much for joining us today. So what do you do to unwind? I need a whole variety of things to do to unwind. One of them being, of course, watching TV shows, movies, etc. But I'm also just huge into hobbies. It's springtime in Minneapolis right now, so I've been mountain biking a lot. I've been re-engaging with golf, which is a very frustrating game, but it keeps you busy. And I'm actually going to play in an uh, alumni baseball game with some of my high school classmates. I like to keep busy, I'll say that. High school reunion. Pretty cool. Do you do any winter sports? Yeah, winter sports are probably my favorite. It's my favorite season. When you grow up in Minnesota, which is on the border of Canada, you really need to learn to love winter. Skiing is my favorite activity. I'm pretty dedicated to skiing. I heard a little rumor that you're really good at skiing (laughs) Um, and can do like tricks and stuff like that. Is that true? Yeah, I've been skiing pretty seriously for my entire life. So I would say I used to be pretty decent at skiing, but by now I've had two knee surgeries. And when you pass age 30, you get a little bit more cautious in everything in life. Taking risks on skis is one of them. So um, I've slowed down, but I still enjoy it. There are a lot of different ways to enjoy skiing. Now I'm more into um, being in touch with nature and going into the backcountry, challenging myself in other ways rather than just skiing the most difficult. Yeah, I think my, my aunt and my uncle are like really avid skiers and they really try to get like me and my sisters to get into skiing and you know, I'm Canadian so we have pretty intense winters as well. But I don't know, skiing for me has always just been so hard. Like, I mean, I wouldn't encourage anyone to get into the hobby of skiing. It's expensive, <laughs> it's dangerous, yeah. it's time consuming. <laughs> And if you really like it, it starts to take over your life. One of the reasons why I went to university and undergrad in Canada was because of Whistler Blackcomb up in uh, (laughs) north of Vancouver. I don't think it's the best hobby. I think there are better hobbies out there. So I I wouldn't push yourself to ski too much. (laughs) And talking about Minnesota, so you talked a lot about being in nature. What was it like growing up in Minneapolis? It's weird because everyone who I talk to, they kind of think of their childhood as the best way to grow up usually. So for me, Minnesota seems like that's what a childhood should be like. Lots of playing sports, lots of being outside no matter what the season. You know, I moved back to Minnesota because I love it here so much after traveling around the world, sometimes for Minerva uh, reasons, sometimes personal reasons. I've come back to Minnesota, so I I really love it. The Midwest kind of gets a reputation for being boring sometimes, (laughs) but people really are friendly and we're, we're we're also more educated than people would <laughs> guess at first glance. We, we do have universities here. Nice to know. And what was your household like? Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got one younger brother. He lives in Denver now. We're only a year and a half separated. So, mm. you know, we grew up playing on the same baseball teams. We were so close. We really shared the uh, childhood experience together. Did you guys fight a lot or, or were you guys like best friends? 
We were pretty good, actually. I mean, my grandparents have some stories about us fighting a little bit, but we were, our parents didn't allow us to have video games or watch TV. So that was used as bribery by my grandparents when they would watch us over the summer. Me and my brother were more into getting as much video game time as possible. So we, you know, we, we worked together to try to achieve that goal together. That's funny. I have two sisters, one younger, one older, and I, I don't think I fought as much with my younger sister, but I definitely had some pretty like violent fights with my older sister growing up. But now we're really close and now we're pretty we're pretty tight. So you know Well that's great. It has evolved. Yeah. And you know what kind of kid were you in school? Like what kind of student were you at like in school? You know, I I really lucked out growing up when I did because I think I'm kind of one of the last cohorts that could not really need to apply themselves greatly in high school in order to get into a decent university or college. <laughs> so I wasn't a great student by any means. I was always good at math, but that's because if you understand math, you don't really need to work too hard at it. You kind of understand the underlying logic and you can get through it. But I was always really, really busy. So it was mostly extracurricular stuff and not structured extracurricular stuff. But I was obsessed with skiing and video making. So me and my friends, and this was before computers were even clocking over one gigahertz on their processors. Yeah. We were figuring out how to edit video long before YouTube, shooting <laughs> on a mini DV tapes, digitalizing them, and then figuring out how to use Final Cut Pro 2. This was <laughs> in the early 2000s, so a long time ago. So we were incredibly busy making ski videos. We were, looking back on it, I think we were building skills. but they weren't things you would traditionally use to get into university. And luckily, I'm from the generation that you didn't need to absolutely kill yourself to compete with other students in your cohort. Do you still have those videos? Yes, I can provide you a link of the oh video. Oh my gosh, yes, please. I think it's on YouTube. <laughs> I'll try to find it. You can see me in high school. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. Check out your skiing skills <laughs> and, and video making skills before YouTube was even there. That's pretty cool. But yeah, moving on to universities. What university did you go to? What did you study in, in undergrad? So I, I alluded to it before, but I ended up going to University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. It was, it was always kind of my dream school. So so even though I grew up in Minnesota, I had family in Seattle and I always loved the West Coast. I, I loved skiing, but I thought there's absolutely no way I'll be able to get into University of British Columbia because as you know, it's one of the top schools in Canada. Luckily for me, I, some, I somehow got in and I really didn't know much about the school because I, I didn't think I would have a chance of getting in. I didn't realize you could actually study things like video making in university. I thought there was just arts or science, even though there are, of course, many other colleges you can go to. I thought, OK, I'm pretty good at math, so I guess I'll go into sciences. But I also, for whatever reason, in Minnesota, I was part of a, kind of an experiment or pilot program that started teaching kids Chinese starting in kindergarten. So Chinese was the only foreign language I had ever studied. And that continued through senior year of high school. So I continued to take Chinese at University of British Columbia. And I never ended up getting good at Chinese <laughs> or anywhere near fluent. But at least it kind of gave me, I guess, additional reasons to kind of pay attention to China becoming, you know, the superpower that it is today. And that kind of got me more interested in economics. 
trying to understand how to explain this massive transformation that's going on in the most populous country in the world. So language was kind of a an entry to using economics to make sense of the world. So it kind of in a weird way led me to economics. That's pretty amazing. I also did Chinese school growing up and I did not take away, you know, a passion for economics. So that's cool that you were able to like extrapolate somehow an interest in economics. It, it was really more when I visited China for the first time. Then I would start thinking, wow, this is absolutely like nothing I've ever seen. So then I would start getting, you know, having all these questions about, oh, why is, why are things this way? And I would lean on my very primitive understand of economics at this time to kind of better understand what the heck is going on. And actually one of the LBAs for SS111, where you go and you bargain at a market, that was inspired by an experience I had in China around 2008, where there used to be all these markets where you bargain over prices, but everyone's selling the same thing. So it was kind mm -hmm. of like perfect competition. And I was learning about perfect competition in my undergrad classes. So yeah, that was kind of the inspiration for one of the LBAs. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Wait, so you mentioned you were in China. When did this happen? This was actually in the year of the Olympics, and it was it was a really fortuitous chain of events. So even though I, I've got absolutely zero talent with language, I was always <laughs> a very dedicated student when it came to learning Chinese. I was going to be in Minnesota over the summer, and Minnesota doesn't really have much of a Chinese uh, population. But I decided, well, I really want to practice Chinese, so. I'll volunteer at the U of M Confucius Institute. Now, this is before there's all the controversies about Confucius Institutes that have surfaced recently. But at the time in 2008, I thought, okay, well, that's a good, you know, opportunity for me to at least keep up my Chinese practice. And the head of the Confucius Institute said, hey, you know, actually, we need some people to teach English in China this summer. And I thought, well, I don't know if I really want to go to, you know, I assumed it'd be at some small city in a place I'd never heard of. Yeah. So I said, you know, where would I be teaching? And he said, well, you'd be teaching in Beijing. I said, oh, wow, this is the year of the Beijing Olympics. That sounds pretty good. And then it turned out that they needed so many people that I could invite my friends to come with me and we would get a flight paid to China. They'd pay for us to teach. They'd pay for our accommodations. So I got to go with two of my good friends. Oh, that's nice. That must have been such an awesome experience. Also during the Olympics. Did you actually get to see the Olympics when you were there? Yeah, uh, randomly someone gave me tickets to a uh, basketball game and it turned out to be the United States men's dream team. So oh I got gosh. to go and uh, yeah. Just randomly. Someone just randomly just, gave you tickets. <laughs> just randomly. Just randomly. It was that's again awesome. very fortuitous. <laughs> So after undergrad, you know, where I just graduated at this point, we're in, you know, a time recording around June. So I just graduated two weeks ago and I... Congratulations, I, I, by the way. <laughs> thank to, you. To everyone who graduated. <laughs> Yeah, and I know like everyone in my class is trying to figure out what they're doing after. And you know, you decided to do a PhD. What made you go that route, or you know, what what were you thinking around this time when you graduated undergrad? Yeah, so actually, one of the last econ classes I took at UBC, the teacher was someone who was from University of Southern California, and I ended up getting my PhD at University of Southern California. But in the class at UBC, he introduced me to the field of happiness economics. 
in traditional economics, you know, the goal is ultimately to learn something that will eventually lead to the improvement of people's lives, but we never really measure it. We just assume that, okay, if we can figure out ways that people can consume more, we're just going to assume that they're going to be happier. And that never really made all that much sense to me. I just kind of went along with it. And then in one of the, the final econ classes, this professor from USC said, you know, we actually just ask people how happy they are and then we can <laughs> see what correlates to people being happy. And that made much more sense. And I kind of got fascinated by it. And one of the founding, you know, I guess godfathers of this area of study was at University of Southern California, Richard Easterlin. I thought it was so interesting. I didn't go straight to PhD. I had to, to get a master's to get enough math classes to actually apply to PhD. But I got the master's and learned more about this area of study and ended up becoming a happiness economist. I was lucky enough to have Richard Easterlin as my advisor. That's awesome. What was your thesis on for a PhD? I'm not sure if, if 30 or 40 years ago, someone's thesis was more, I guess, well-defined, but usually it ends up being whatever research papers you work on during your PhD, and then you try to come up with a theme <laughs> that ties them together once things are done. So I think my I had a very generic title of, you know, four essays on the relationship between happiness and policy or something like that. I don't even remember the theme. But generally, you know, I was trying to look at what life circumstances are related to people reporting that they're happy with their lives. Mm -hmm. And this could be either through policy, because policy can have an effect on people's life circumstances, or it could be just one of my papers is simply trying to identify what happens to people's happiness as they age. Do they get happier? Do they get less happy? Is it some sort of other pattern? It turns out it's a different type of pattern. It depends on the country where you live. But yeah, just kind of random happiness research. So what's like a fun fact about happiness that you've discovered through your findings? Like what's an interesting takeaway? I can't claim that I discovered this, but kind of the really interesting thing to me is that there are a lot of personal factors that affect your happiness, you know, your health, mm -hmm. the quality of your job, like these individual level factors. And that's kind of, you know, that's important to know because it matters. You have direct control over that. And you can use this information to pursue a happier life. You know, stability seems like on the individual level, people really appreciate that on average. So then you can yeah. try to pursue a life that gives you stability in one form. That's one example. But also, it's very clear that there are societal level factors that also influence your happiness. So this is kind of like social capital, how well society cares for and works together at the societal level. And for me, this is really interesting because I've been lucky enough to travel around to different countries. And while I've been studying happiness and kind of see what countries do good, what are parts of culture that really promote a happy life? I noticed that a lot of countries, especially Especially in Southern Europe have a lot of um, culture that promotes eating together, taking time to build connections with friends. And I would think this is great. You know, I've got to import this into my life when I go back to America. And I would find it's just impossible because our culture is not conducive to taking long dinners during the week with, you know, loose acquaintances. So kind of that's what I'm really interested in now is, okay, beyond these individual level things where you kind of have more control over, how can you mm -hmm. construct more group level, healthy happiness atmosphere in your life? 
I think that's a really cool finding and you're my capstone advisor so you know I'm all about building social capital. That's really interesting to see how in Southern Europe there's just like cultural differences that lend itself better to you know having those like social gatherings during dinner times and it'll be interesting to see how what that might look like in the U.S. when we're trying to re rebuild social capital here. Yeah the U.S. is a really interesting example because as far back as we have reliable data happiness has not been increasing in the United States despite the fact that the United States is getting much, much more wealthy. And this is dating back to the 70s. And if anything, the evidence looks like happiness has declined. Social capital, I love the idea. I think it it's not measured all that well. It's, it's a mm -hmm. hard thing to measure. But the measures we have really shows that social capital has been declining. And I worry about trends of people having Uber Eats instead of going out and integrating themselves in society more. Yeah. So there's recently a Taco Bell that opened close to my house in Minnesota, where there's no dining space. It's all about making the drive-through experience more efficient. And things like that, I just think about the happiness implications. Mm -hmm. Eating alone in your car, no matter how efficiently and cheaply you buy your meal, is a suboptimal outcome in my book. Yeah, for sure. I mean, growing up, it was always emphasized to me, like, we always eat dinner together as a family. I think that's also very Asian culture and values as well, like e eating, sharing a meal together. And I know at Minerva, we have like these feasts, you know, where we're trying to cook for each other and share a meal together. And yeah, when I look back, like those are the times when I've been like pretty happy in those moments. You know, another finding is that we're such comparative creatures. We can't mm. help but social comparisons have a huge effect on your happiness. But there is some preliminary research that shows that if you have really robust social networks, it seems like you compare yourself less on material outcomes. Whatever sort of things lead to more robust social networks, it seems to just really, really help in happiness, but also in health and all these other important outcomes too. Yeah, that seems like a pretty good, pretty important finding. And talking about findings and learnings, you know, you've gone through this entire amazing childhood, went to China to teach English, finished your PhD. Through all that, I'm I'm wondering, you know, what did you learn from your experiences? Do you have any advice for Minervans or any takeaways that upon reflecting on your experience that you'd want to share? The thing that I, that I really realized is the future is really, really hard to predict. I started learning Chinese in kindergarten and that <laughs> led me to economics of all things. I started studying happiness economics. And when you're finishing your PhD, you're kind of doing the same thing that graduating Minervans right now and M23s are thinking about now is what's next. And I was kind of looking at academia and universities and I concluded, I don't know if it's a good idea to go into academia because in the U.S. at least I saw tuition prices were just absolutely ridiculous, kind of fed by easy access to loans and supported by basically preying on international students who get zero financial aid. So then universities kind of become this weird way to support the higher SES groups in society while also giving people crippling debt, which seemed to A, not really be something I really wanted to be involved in, but also mm -hmm. just didn't seem sustainable. It, it seemed like it might not be a wise career move to go into universities, which might, we, we might lose a lot of universities in the near future. We'll see. But then randomly, one of my friends from PhD started working for Minerva a little bit and introduced me to Minerva and this model that kind of solves a lot of the gripes I had with traditional universities. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be working at Minerva, even though if you pulled me a 
side in my fifth year PhD, I would have said there's no way that I'm going to work for a university in the future. It, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. The future is really unpredictable. I would say just keep on moving in a direction. It will work out, but probably not the way that you expect it to. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much for talking about your past experiences and giving us that, you know, future is unpredictable. I'm not sure how comforting that <laughs> is, but, you know, going with the flow and just embracing opportunities that come. Yeah, it's unavoidable, though, the un unpredictable yeah. nature of the future. But I'm very confident that uh, all the Minerva students are equipped to handle whatever the future may be. So Prof. Morgan, I'm, I'm curious, what is it like to be you right now? I'd say I'm, I'm pretty happy. Um, I'm entering a, a transition phase where previously I've traveled a lot and it was more a knowledge absorbing time. But now I'm going to move into a new house and I'm thinking more of settling down, which is kind of why I'm thinking about, okay, well, how do you build a happy life in America where there are a lot of things, a lot of cultural norms that are kind of going against things that make people happy? I would say I'm pretty happy right now, but there's still work to be done. I haven't figured everything out yet. That's really cool. So you're you're buying a house soon. Are you gonna be in Minnesota? Yep, I'm moving back. I mean, I I hate to say it's findings from happiness research, <laughs> but just the the connections to your family are obviously important. We didn't need yeah. a bunch of studies to confirm that. But you know, my parents still live here, so that's a big reason why I'm moving back to Minnesota. Nice. And you know, we all know you as a professor at Minerva, but what are you working on outside of being a professor at Minerva? Like, who are you outside of being a professor? Being a professor is it takes up a lot of time, but you know. I I'm still engaged in the research community. Hopefully, if all things go well, I'll be able to go to a happiness research conference this summer and meet up with all my research friends. Other than that, I would say I really take hobbies seriously, <laughs> and I've got a, a whole bunch of hobbies. I keep busy with a bunch of random activities. And what are you currently doing outside of Minerva now in terms of like your hobbies? Yeah, so, you know, professionally, put professionalism aside, I'm really, I used to golf a lot. I golf for my high school, actually. Competitively. Minnesota high school sports isn't really a high bar, but I <laughs> took it seriously. And then I stopped playing for about 20 years, and now I'm trying to get into it a little bit more. But I'm also really into um, photography, so I try to keep on building my skills. Also reconnecting with a bunch of friends that I, that I have from Minnesota. That's nice. I always think about what life is going to be like in five, ten years, and if I'm going to keep up with friends at Minerva or even from high school. It's nice to know that, that you're still in touch with your high school friends and your PhD friends and your research friends. It gives me hope. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say social media is kind of a big thing because you can keep tabs on people. And then, you know, also when you think about the, the network shape of your friend's network, you know, you reconnect with one person who will put you in contact with three more. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing I get a lot of happiness out of reconnecting mm -hmm. with people. 
Yeah. So we talked about your past. We've talked about your present, what you're doing now. But I also want to look at the future too. You know, you're a professor at Minerva. You're obviously very passionate about economics and happiness economics. I'm wondering, like, forward looking, what is a big picture plan? Or like, what problem are you trying to solve? Or what are you looking forward to in your life in the next like five, ten years or twenty years? Yeah, five, ten, even twenty years. Hopefully, I'll I'll still be at Minerva or <laughs> involved. At some capacity, and hopefully by then, people will have heard of it more frequently rather than than me having to explain to everyone that what I do is actually a legitimate job, and our <laughs> students are legitimately amazing. But I think as we have more and more graduating classes going out into the world, all of our graduating classes are going to be our greatest ambassadors. I have、uh, little doubt that people are going to get more and more aware of Minerva in the future. Hopefully, Minerva continues to grow, and that will continue to be a big part of my life. In Terms of happiness research, doing the grind of publishing scientific articles is a little bit too tedious to me. But I'm still really interested in the findings. So in the future, maybe after I try to implement these findings more in my personal life, I can think about how to communicate these findings to a broader audience.、Mm. But that will kind of be like my own personal capstone project. Yeah, I would totally read or watch whatever you produce. I, I want to know how to be happier. <laughs> And I'm sure everyone else does as well. <laughs> I would try to take a more scientific approach and say these are the findings. These don't guarantee、mm-hmm. happiness. It's what works for people on average. But I think of them as good starting points. So that's kind of once I close out all my research projects, which continue to take time, then I'll have a chunk of time freed up where I can kind of start my own personal capstone project. But it's hard to decide, as everyone knows who's gone through the capstone. It's hard to decide what you want to do. Yeah, and so you said you still want to be a prof at Minerva. Why did you want to be a professor to begin with? There are a lot of things that drew me to it. You know, when I first heard about it, I probably had the same reaction as a lot of students, which is, "What is is that true? You know, like that sounds cool, but no, I probably should look a little into it and make sure it's not a scam or something." So I met Dean Davis, and、um, she gave me some more information. I ended up guest lecturing a class, and it was really stimulating. The students were great, and、mm-hmm. as I got more involved at that time. It was really exciting to be building something that had this really important mission that seemed to align with a lot of my personal values. We previously talked about how traditional universities don't always align with those values as being a way for anyone, if they have the ability, to have it being a stepping stone for doing something they want to do in the future. I don't know if many universities do a good of job of that as Minerva does, which makes me really, really proud to work at Minerva. But it was also just incredible to be building. <laughs> this university, where we needed to figure out what does capstone look like,、yeah. what do four years look like, what should we include? It was really fun to be a part of that building process, and now we're kind of we've done a lot of the building, but now we can really start reflecting and trying to get better at what we do, which is really exciting, both on you know the teaching side, but also as an overall model、mm-hmm. and alumni. How do they fit into this? This is why I'm kind of so excited about this podcast. It seems like a great way to. <laughs> Keep in contact with people, and there's just always something new and interesting, and it's still centered.
centered around that mission that I personally believe in. Yeah. Do you have a favorite moment? Oh, that's really, really hard. There have been so many great moments, but there is something really special about being able to meet the students in person. I remember we met when I visited in South Korea, which is really nice. And yeah, I hope there's more of that going forward because you can get to know people a lot through the forum, but it really is great to get to know the students as people and for them to get to know you as a person too. And the on-site visits are really fun ways to do that. So being involved in the LBA for SS111, going down to the market mm. with all the students, that was a really, really great memory. And also being able to meet Professor Digby's students, that was great too. Yeah, I remember that. That was so fun. All right, well, thank you so much for being on this podcast. We do have, before we leave, we have a fast fire round of questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. What are your favorite TV shows? My favorite TV show ever since high school has been Seinfeld. The more I, I grow older, then I understand more of what they're getting <laughs> at. It's grown with me. Okay, what's a fun fact that students wouldn't know about you? I have photos published in a ski magazine. It's a pretty niche magazine. I don't even think they're online. I think it might be print only. I was the photographer. That's pretty cool though. Camping or binge watching shows at home? Definitely camping. What's your spirit fruit? This one was, was tricky, but I think lemon, because I like to think that I'm somewhat versatile. I think lemons okay, are pretty okay. versatile fruit. Yeah. And what is your word of the day? Oh, yes. Probably bureaucracy because <laughs> I've been having to deal with the government and the IRS canceled my meeting. So, yeah, a little bit of frustrated with that today. All right. Let's wrap this episode. Prof Morgan, what's the best way for our audience to reach you if they want to connect or have follow-up questions? I guess email, Slack. It shouldn't be hard to get a hold of me. I'm always happy to get emails from students. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Prof Morgan. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and automatically get notified about new episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at humansofminerva.podcast for all the latest updates and announcements. And finally, special thanks to our editor, Cassandra Cruz, for working her magic on this episode. Thanks for listening to Humans of Minerva.